We've been working our way through different studies of the Old Testament and how they point forward to the New Testament over the last few weeks. And we've been thinking about this question, what ought to characterize God's people? What ought to set God's people apart? And I've been trying to move in a particular direction in answering that question. The first thing that ought to characterize our lives is our relationship to Jesus Christ. I hope you would agree with me that that should be the fundamental characteristic of our life, that we have a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ so that we, we looked at the fact that we are those who confess that He's the only way to God. He is our mediator. He is our gate. We are those who submit to Jesus as our King. We take refuge in Him and we are also those who trust in Him for all of our needs. We don't just come to Him once at the beginning of our Christian life and put our trust in Him, but Christians are characterized by a daily, ongoing trust in Jesus Christ for all of their needs. But then we shifted, a couple weeks ago, we shifted to saying this, that our lives also ought to be characterized by an active pursuit of holiness. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about this active pursuit of holiness. And last week again, we talked about the, the need to actively pursue holiness. And now we are shifting to this final section of our series that we also ought to be characterized by our mission in this world. That we actually have a purpose here on this earth. That God has left us. He's left us with a task, right? And we are to be about accomplishing that task. And so today we're going to be thinking about what makes that mission even possible. What is our relationship to this world? And then we'll go on from there in the next couple of sessions. And that's kind of where we're at. Again, welcome to those who are perhaps viewing online. There are handouts. I just want to make you aware of that. If this is the first time you're joining us, that you can download at our website at eibibleschool.org. If you go to the Monday night meeting page, you'll see the handout there and that can be helpful. So before we go any further, let's begin our time with prayer. Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for choosing us and and making us your own, setting us apart. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand how that being set apart also sets us in a different kind of relationship to this world in which we live. Pray that you would apply the truths of your word tonight to our hearts and enable us to live this life that you've called us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book in the New Testament that's meant a lot to me over the, over the last 10 years or so. It's written to believers who are experiencing the rejection of those around them. They are being persecuted for their new faith in Jesus Christ. Most of the persecution is probably not physical, but verbal, slander and such. And such. So they're being mocked. They're being considered. Uh, they're considered weird and strange by their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends, their family because of their new faith, their new religion, uh, this this new following of Jesus Christ. In the face of all this opposition, Peter is concerned that these believers not isolate themselves and insulate themselves from the world at large. He's very concerned, Peter is very concerned about the mission of suffering Christians to the world. He's very concerned about how Christians engage in the world. And so it's a great book for what we're thinking about tonight. Now what I want to do is I want to read the very first verse. It's the introduction to this book where Peter is saying, hey, I'm the one writing it, and who am I writing to? It's the from and the to section of this book. And I want to read it in Greek right up here because I think you are all, all are Greek experts. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see something that you can't see in your English Bible. And the English Bible is great, but something is in- going on that's very interesting here. And actually, it's so simple in Greek that you can read it. You, you read it. Petros apostolos Jesu Christu. Can you read that? It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You, you following so far? And then these next two words, that's who it's from. That's who the letter is from. Now, who is the letter to? And you have two words here. Eklektois parapidemois. Two very important words. Who am I writing to? 
I'm writing to elect aliens. That's one way to put it. Elect strangers. That's who am I writing to? Of the diaspora. And here are the regions he's writing to, Pontus and Galatians, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right? These are areas in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor of that day. Okay? But these two words I want you to focus on, eklektois, parapidemois. They are chosen aliens. Elect aliens. Now, I'm not talking about aliens with antennas on top and coming from another planet, right? But we're talking about, we're using the word alien. I want to use that word along with the word stranger, foreigner. We use it, actually. We talk about illegal aliens, right? What are we talking about? People who don't belong, who are foreigners, right? Uh, who are here illegally. Uh, but we use that word alien in that sense. And I want you to note here, look at this little box here, there's a relationship between these two words. The, the, the idea of being elect is the idea of being chosen by God, selected by God, picked out. It's a, it's a word that speaks of our relationship to God, that speaks of immense privilege, right? That God in His mercy has picked us out. But that word alien can mean temporary residents or strangers, has to do with our relationship to the society, our relationship to the world. And it speaks of a relationship of disadvantage, right? You're not an advantage being an alien, being a stranger. You're at a disadvantage in the culture. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever been to another country where you, you were a stranger, where you're a foreigner, you didn't know the language perhaps very well, you didn't know the customs, you didn't know the right things to do. Maybe you haven't been to another country. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe you've experienced this to some degree when you joined a new job and you were, you know, starting out this new job. You don't know everybody around you. You're the, you're the outsider. You're coming in. You don't know how to act or how to be. Or maybe you come to a new school. You know, you, you get that sense, a little bit of the sense of being an alien, an outsider, right? And this is, this is not a, a, relation, a place of advantage. But what I want you to see, the relationship to these two words, is that we are strangers. Why are we strangers? Why are we aliens? Precisely because we've been chosen. Does that make sense? Why, why, are we at, why are we strangers to the world? Because God has come and He's picked us and chosen us out of the world. And that puts us in a certain relationship to this world that we now have an entirely new relationship. We no longer share the lifestyles and goals and ambitions that other people around us have. Now this is, the reason I'm pointing this out is that this word alien is a favorite term of Peter's to describe God's people. Uh, this, is, this is a way he, he speaks of God's people. We're aliens and strangers. So go over to chapter 2. So now we're going to just jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And again, we're just introducing, we're setting, the, setting ourselves up like we usually do. We will be getting into the Old Testament. But here in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter is going to give us a summary of what he believes ought to be our strategy in this world. What is our strategy, strategy for um, our mission, particularly to a world that is hostile to us, that doesn't want to hear the gospel? And here is his strategy. He says, Beloved, I urge you as what? Here you have it again. I, I urge you as aliens. Here he adds a word, and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent, he says, among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What Peter seems to be indicating here is that it is our identity as aliens and strangers that makes possible our mission in this world. There's a relationship between being an alien, a stranger to this world, and our capacity to shine as a light in this world. The two are interconnected. We are in an unusual situation, if you really think about it, as Christians, because we are foreigners. We are citizens of another country, right? So we're foreigners in this land. You might say, oh, I'm an American. <laughs> this is my country. Yeah, but you've been transferred into another kingdom, 
if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now you belong to God's kingdom and God's family, and that's going to put you in a different kind of relationship to this world. Being a citizen of another country means we live by a whole different set of standards, right? We abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against our soul. And we're not to be consumed and driven by what consumes and drives everybody everybody around us. Paul's strategy, if you note here, is not fit in, cuddle up, you know, with this world, show them that you're all really all not that different to this world. What is his strategy? His strategy is pretty simple. Let your lifestyle reflect your country. Let your lifestyle reflect your country. See, you're citizens of heaven. Live like it. Live like a citizen of God's kingdom. And if you will do that, even if people are hostile to you, they will be attracted to you. Why? Because people are always attracted by what's weird and different. And you will be weird. And you will be different. And so they will be attracted to you. And they will come and ask you, where are you from? You know, what planet are you from? And you'll have an opportunity to share. To share how God has chosen you and brought you into His kingdom and into His family. Now, Peter's language here Describing believers as aliens and strangers is not... He doesn't just create this language. He didn't just come up with this idea. You know, Peter's thinking, oh, I think I'll come up with this idea of aliens and strangers. This is an idea that finds its roots in the Old Testament. This whole idea of living as an alien and stranger is something that is drawn from the Old Testament. See, the whole New Testament isn't written in a vacuum. The the writers of the New Testament had the Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament shaped their theology, their view of God and their view of life, their worldview. And so when they're writing in the New Testament, they're often pulling from ideas from the Old Testament. We've noticed that, right, quite a bit in this series, and there's quite a bit more to notice in the New Testament. So this whole, this this concept of that we are elect strangers comes, or that we are strangers and aliens comes from the Old Testament. And if you look up any commentary on First Peter, on First Peter two eleven, you will you will see that almost almost every commentary takes you back to two Old Testament passages. The first is Genesis twenty three four, and the second is Psalm thirty nine twelve. And the only reason these two are brought up is because those are the only two places in the Old Testament where both these exact words are used in the same sentence. Now I'm referring here this would be in the Greek Old Testament. So this would be the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. These two words, exact same words, paroikos, parapidemos, are being used in these two passages. And they take us back to a man named Abraham and a man named David. Now these two men are pretty important figures in the Old Testament. But before we can unravel what's going on with Abraham and David and how they are called this, we need to go even further back. We're going to want to go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 1. So if you turn there to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to try to set this, set up the, the picture here. Why is it important that Abraham and David are called uh, aliens and strangers? Why is that important? Why is it important that they confess that they are aliens and strangers? And in order to understand that, we have to go back to the very beginning. Right, how are we doing? Now we're back in the Old Testament. Okay? And we're going to move back forward into the New. All right. We begin with Genesis 1 and 2. God created man in his own image. Man, you could say, was at home with God, and God was at home with man. Could we say that? They, they walked with each other. There was relationship there. And they were at home with each other. Man lived in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, a place of great uh, delight and a a wonderful place that God created for mankind. But then we find out very quickly in chapter 3 that when man sinned, he becomes estranged from God. He becomes alienated from God. Immediately, you, you recognize this immediately, right? Because as soon as they take a bite of that fruit that was forbidden... They go and what do they do? They go and hide themselves, right? 
They, they distanced themselves from God. So there's this immediate sense of alienation, of, of not feeling like you're in you're the right place, of feeling like you're a foreigner. That was that immediate sensation, that sense of fear and not belonging. Adam and Eve experienced that for the very first time. And we're told in Genesis 3.24, so if you look there in Genesis 3.24, we read that God drove the man out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the picture is, I'm skipping over the God's judgment on mankind, but he drives them out of the garden and he drives them out towards the east and he places a cherubim there so that they cannot come back. And that cherubim is a picture of the distance that separates God from man at this point. Does that make sense? They can no longer go back into the presence of God. Now the story quickly gets worse. You know the story in chapter 4. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we read pretty quickly that Cain murders his brother. And God comes to him. And you see that in verse 9. God comes to Cain and says, Where is Abel, your brother? Of course, Cain says, You know, my, my brother's keeper. You know, I'm, it's not my problem. But what is God doing? God is coming to Cain saying, something, you did something, right? Giving him an opportunity to repent, but Cain doesn't repent, and God ends, ends up judging Cain. I want you to begin reading in verse 11. Are you there? Chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. Now notice this language. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain... Cain's natural response to this judgment, this word of judgment, he's going to be a wanderer on the earth, is fear. He's afraid, right? And so what does God do in order to try to alleviate this fear? He says, you know, basically God says to Cain here in verse 15, whoever kills Cain, I will take vengeance sevenfold. Right? So don't touch Cain. And he puts a mark on him. But then we read in verse 16 that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now what's interesting here is that this is as much a theological statement as it is a historical or geographical. Because he settles, we're told, in the land of Nod. And if you look up that word Nod in a Hebrew lexicon, you'll find that it means wandering. In other words, he he goes and he lives and settles in the land of wandering. He's a wanderer. He's a sojourner. There's no place he can call home. And he is, note again, east of Eden. And this becomes later uh, important later on. Cain is a depiction of the human race, is he not? That he... He is one who has been driven out from God's presence and now he lives in the land of wandering. There's a sense in which that's true of each of us, isn't it? We are created to live in God's presence, but we've been driven from his presence and we've all settled in some sense in the land of wandering. We're not in Eden, we're east of Eden. We're not in the garden, we're out of the garden. As one commentator put it, we are condemned to perpetual searching for God's presence the God with whom we want nothing to do. We long for God, but we want nothing to do with God. There's this weird conflict. And all the while our condition keeps us from ever finding Him. So man finds himself a foreign in a foreign land, away from his true home. He's an alien, he's a stranger, he's a foreigner, he's a wanderer. He no, he's no longer at home with God. God is, at, is not at home with him terrible situation. But back to Cain. God has promised to protect Cain. But what does Cain do? Look at what the first thing Cain does. Verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. 
and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So what's interesting here is Cain, out of the sense of alienation, has a son and builds a city. Builds a city. Um, And this is the very first instance, the very first mention of a city in the Bible, which is quite interesting. I'm going to quote here from a guy named Jacques Ellul. He wrote this little book called The Meaning of the City. It was actually first put onto this book by a guy named, uh, a man named Raleigh Reasoner, who's had a lot of influence on the school here. And he told me about this book as being a very interesting book. And indeed, it is a fascinating book to read. Where this Jacques Ellul was a, a theologian. Uh, you might not agree with everything in the book, but it will definitely make you think. And he writes about the meaning of the city, and he says the city is a direct consequence of Cain's murderous act in his refusal to accept God's protection. And what this guy is saying is, instead of saying, yes, I trust in you, God, you have promised to protect me, Cain walks away from God and says, I'm going to build a city and I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to watch over myself. And Cain has built a city. For God's Eden, he substitutes his own. The context makes it clear that Cain is afraid. He's looking for security. He wants to overcome this sense of insecurity that is part of being a foreigner, a wanderer in a foreign land. This is mankind's response, is it not, to the sense of alienation. Our tendency, our response to this sense of alienation from God is to try to build a home for ourselves on this earth. A place where we belong a place where we're secure and we're safe. Now, if the, building is, if the building of a city is truly man's response to a sense of alienation, we should expect to see a pattern, and indeed we do see a pattern in the book of Genesis. The second city that the Bible focuses on is the city of Babel, and that takes you, you have to go to turn to chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11. This city is built after the flood. Nimrod is one of the descendants of Ham, who is Noah's cursed son. And he initiates the building of a city called Babel. Now you've sure read this story of Babel. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for whom? For God? No, for ourselves, right? A city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. See, the one thing that we do not want as mankind is to be scattered. We don't want to be a foreigner. We don't want to be homeless. We want a home, right? We long for a home. We long for a place. And so they're coming together to build this city, this city of Babel. Now, note some interesting points here again. Again, they travel east. This emphasis on the direction that they're traveling in. Note that they are afraid of being scattered. They're afraid of being scattered. And they are seeking significance for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the result, we know the end of the story, right? The result is that they are further alienated. Not just from God, but now from each other because God comes down, scrambles the languages, and they all have to move in separate directions. Very interesting. They have to wander. They have to separate. They have to move out. They all become estranged from one another. And as they are estranged from God. And so note again this movement east Adam and Eve are moving east. Canaan and the city of Enoch, they move east, building a city, city of Babel, east. This movement. The third city that is focused on in the Bible you find in chapter 13. And this is the city of Sodom. Abraham and Lot, if you remember the story, Abraham and Lot, Lot is Abraham's nephew. And they have lots of possessions, really rich. And their servants end up fighting over 
the property and the wells, and, and Abraham says, look, it's time for us to separate. There's, you know, there's too much. There's, we've got too much livestock. And so we pick up in verse 8. You're there, chapter 13, verse 8. And Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. So um, Abraham is being a gentleman. He's being very kind and gracious and letting his nephew Lot make the first choice. You go that way, I'll go that way. You know, pick, pick, pick the direction you want to head in. So Lot, we are told, lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Note that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself. Note again that there's a self-seeking aspect to this decision. He seeks for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed, what did he journey? Eastward. Oh, by this point you should be going, oh no, don't do it. Don't go east. But he goes east. Um, Thus they were. They are. Thus they separated from each other, and Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. So notice again some of these patterns. The text specifically draws the connection between the Jordan Valley. And the garden of the Lord. I find that fascinating. They're trying to describe the Jordan Valley. If you looked at the Jordan Valley right now, it's like a desert. You know, it's 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 not at all what you would describe as an Eden, uh, a garden of the Lord. But here, there's this connection being made between the valley, the Jordan Valley, and the Garden of Eden. But this is not the Garden of Eden. We are told that it is not at all like the Garden of Eden. This is really a pseudo-garden, a false Eden. Why why do we know it's a false Eden? Because we're told that there is great wickedness in this place, right? It cannot be the Garden of Eden. There's great wickedness here. Secondly, note that Lot travels eastward. Again, not a good sign. And by this point, I believe it is partly a theological statement. That is, it's loaded with meaning. And Lot settles in a city, the city of Sodom, a place of great wickedness. In fact, the wickedness is so great that not too many years from thence, God is going to rain down fire and brimstone and completely annihilate that city. So let's draw some conclusions here from our study so far. A little summary. So again, this movement eastward, eastward, eastward. First of all, because of his sin, man has been driven from God's presence and is a stranger to God. Would you agree with me? He's been pushed out of the Garden of Eden. He's no longer at home with God. He's distant from God. He's a stranger to God. Secondly, Man seeks to overcome his sense of alienation. How does he do it? How does he overcome his sense of alienation from God? By building a home for himself on earth. By seeking a place of safety here, a significance here on this earth. Note that this city, if we just think about these three cities that we looked at in Genesis, is a place of self-protection and self-trust. That seems to be the big idea with Cain. The city of man is also a place where man seeks glory and significance for himself. That seems to be the big idea with Babel, right? Looking for significance. And thirdly, the city is a place of great wealth, great abundance, great appeal. Lot is drawn to it, while at the same time a grace, a place of great wickedness and immorality. The city, the city is a place where man makes up his own rules, gets to do what he wants, and doesn't have to submit to God. Does that make sense? That's the city. That's the idea of the city in the Bible. Now, in the midst of this mess, 
And there's a lot more we could do because the idea of a city goes all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation. It's a fascinating picture of the city. And you could go there, I think it's chapters 16, 17, fascinating picture of the city there. But in the midst of all of this mess, God calls a man to leave the city and to leave his worldly home and to live as a foreigner in a foreign country. And you know who that man is. We have to turn back to chapter 12 of Genesis. This is Abraham. Abraham lived in the city of Ur. This was an up-and-coming city, a big city of the day. And God comes to him, and you see there in chapter 12, we're going to read the first three verses. Here's what God says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, Abraham's call is to become an alien, a stranger, a sojourner. Know that this is a movement away from the city, away from an earthly home, and by all assessments, away from security and significance. Because if you want to become important, you go to the city, you don't leave the city. And God is calling Abraham to himself. And if he is going to come, he's going to have to give up his own search for security and significance. Howard Voss is a professor. He was a professor of history and archaeology. Know what he writes about the city of Ur. This is where Abraham was from. He says, as I understand the chronology, Ur was in control of an empire in the days of Abraham and was enjoying one of the most brilliant periods in the history of Mesopotamia. We're talking about like, you know, people would think of like, I don't know, New York City or like, I don't know, some big city that's just really enjoying a brilliant period. Uh, and there was no earthly reason why Abraham should have wanted to leave Ur. Note that there is no earthly reason, right? But there was a heavenly reason why he left Ur. Why? Because Abraham was called by God. Abraham's decision is in response to God's call. God is initiating here. God is calling Abraham to himself. God is interrupting his life and he's saying, follow me. Go with me. Go to the place where I tell you to go. And so Abraham, note that Abraham is told to move west. I find this just fascinating, you know. In the early days here in the United States, there was a big thing, go west, young man. You know? And in a sense, Abraham is told, go west. Both Cain and the builders of Babel settled in the east. Now Abraham is told to move west. This is a 180 degree change in direction. I think this is very... Very important. So you know where Ur is and he's moving. He's told to go west to the land of Canaan. All these individuals going east in order to live in cities or build cities. And now you have a man who's called west to live in a tent. You think God's trying to say something? Yeah, he's trying to communicate a point. Now there's a close relationship between Abraham living in his tent in a foreign land and God's covenant blessing that he has promised to make to him and to the whole world. God's blessing towards Abraham and through him to the world depends on him living as a foreigner, an alien, a sojourner. There's a relationship between these two things. Now we're going to fast forward to the end of Abraham's life and if you turn to Genesis 23, go all the way to the end of his life and you find Abraham, his wife Sarah has just died And you find him here at the end of his life. His wife has died and he has no land. He he owns no property at all. But in order to bury his wife, he asks to purchase a plot of land so he can bury his wife. And he's there negotiating with the sons of Heth. And this is the confession that he makes before these people that he wants to buy this burial plot from. In Genesis 23, verse 4, know what he says. I am a stranger 
and a sojourner among you. This is Abraham's confession. I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now that's very important. Who am I? I am a stranger. I am an alien. I am a sojourner on this earth. That's, that's Abraham's confession of his identity on, in relationship to this world. Now, why did Abraham choose to live this way? We're told, and we're fast-forwarding a little bit here, peeking ahead, but we're told in the book of Hebrews that it was because he was looking for a city. It's not that he enjoyed living as a stranger, but he was looking for a city which has foundations, which by implication means that every earthly city has no foundation. Does it make sense? But he's looking for a city that has a foundation whose builder and architect is God. In other words, Abraham was seeking to go home. Yeah, he was seeking home, but he was seeking to go home God's way. He wasn't seeking for an earthly home. He was seeking for a heavenly home. And therefore, he was a stranger on this earth. Now, Abraham leaves a legacy. His life becomes a paradigm for the lives of his descendants. Abraham's descendants will inherit the status of being aliens and strangers. And you note that all the way through the history of Israel, you will note this. You note it with Isaac. Isaac, in Genesis 26, 3, God tells them, sojourn, which is this word, paroikel, it's this idea of sojourning as a stranger in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So Isaac was called, like his father, to be a sojourner. Jacob as well. We are told in Genesis 47.9, this is the very end of Jacob's life. He's before Pharaoh and he makes this confession, the days of the years of my sojourning. He uses that word. My wandering on this earth, my, my, my temporary residence on this earth are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. You turn to the children of Israel, the children of Israel in Egypt, slaves in Egypt. And here we are told God tells Abraham, looking out ahead and says, Know for certain that your descendants will be paroikos, strangers, in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for four hundred years. This is their identity. They will experience this being a stranger. You move to Moses in Exodus two twenty two. Remember, Moses, in one sense, embodies this whole theology, this whole concept, because he grew up in the palace, he grew up in wealth, and he leaves all of that, right? And he runs out into the wilderness and lives in a tent. He too leaves wealth and prosperity. And as when he gets married out there, and he has a son, and he names him Gershom, for he says, I've been a Ger, I've been a sojourner translated in the Greek Old Testament, uh, Testament paroikos, a, a stranger in a foreign land, a sojourner in a foreign land. You get in the picture here? This legacy that is being passed down. And then you turn... Uh, well, then you turn to the Israelites in the Promised Land. This is very interesting because you would think that, ah, now the Israelites are in the land. They're home, right? They're no longer... They're no longer strangers. They're no longer foreigners. But uh uh-uh. Leviticus 25, 23, God tells them, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. No one owns the land permanently. For the land is mine, says God, for you are but aliens and sojourners, paroikos, with me. Very interesting, isn't it? Even in the land. And then you turn to David. And David is... And Psalm 39.12 makes this also this great confession where he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Now this ought to be a surprising statement because if anyone is a local, if anyone is a native, if anyone belongs, surely it's the king of the land, right? Surely it's David, king of the land of Israel. But David understood 
that Abraham's life as an alien and a stranger living in a tent in a foreign land was simply an outward indication of a deeper spiritual homelessness. And David says, I have that spiritual homelessness too. This earth is not my home. It's not my home. I am a stranger on this earth. And finally, so there's your word, spiritual. The spiritual homelessness. And finally, the church. And we come all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter says, Beloved, I urge you. Who are you? As aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. This is who you are. You're aliens and strangers in relationship to this world. So you see how that concept echoes back into the Old Testament. So what can we derive? What, what, what's the takeaway tonight from all of this? First of all, God's people are those who have confessed that they are aliens and strangers before God. This is the first, this is the first big point. God's people first confess that they are aliens and strangers not to the world but to God in relationship to God. The confession first has implications to God because God's people are those who understand that the most serious form of alienation is alienation from God. It is the confession that we're far from God, that we need God. You won't find Cain, you won't find the city, the people of Babel, the people of Sodom, and you won't find the people of the world today, the people who love the world. You won't find them confessing, I'm an alien and a stranger before God. You won't find them confessing that. Who do you find confessing that? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and true believers today say, yes, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger with respect to God. Before you can go home, you have to recognize and confess that you're far from home. There's a paradox of sorts here, isn't there? Before you can go back to God, you have to realize that you're far from God. If you're going to make your way out of the land of Nod, out of the land of wandering, you have to come to the realization that you are wandering. Does that make sense? It's the only way to go back. You have to first realize that you're far from God. A good picture of this in the parable of the prodigal son, right? He came to his senses, we're told. He came into his right mind, and then he could go home, back to his father. We have to face the reality that spiritually we're in a far country. We've sinned against God, our Creator. We need reconciliation. We need redemption. We need forgiveness. We need mercy, and God has made a way. A wonderful way, right? Jesus, God's Son, left His home and became a stranger on this earth in order to save strangers. We're told that He came to His own, and John and those who were his own did not receive him. He was rejected. He was an outsider. We are told, Jesus himself says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, what? He has nowhere to lay his head. He experienced homelessness. Right? He was a, a, a foreigner on this earth. We're told in Isaiah that he was despised and forsaken of men. This is the experience of a stranger. He lived as an alien and a stranger, and as a stranger he was rejected and crucified outside the city of walls. And he did it so that we who were far from God might be able to come home. That's why he did it. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, this is referring especially specifically to Gentiles. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, We were far away from God. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near. So that's the first step. If we're going to come back to God, we have to recognize that we're an alien, a stranger, a foreigner to God first. Second point, though, tonight. God's people are those who have become aliens and strangers. Not just to... They don't just recognize their alienation from God. But now that they have been reconciled to God, now they become aliens and strangers to the world. Does that make sense? And because they have ceased to seek a home in this world. Our confession of being aliens and strangers with relationship to God affects our relationship to the world. 
See, most are not willing to make this confession. Most are not willing to say, I'm an alien and stranger. I wonder if you're willing to say that tonight. I'm an alien and stranger on this earth. Why are they not willing to make that confession? Because many are seeking a city for themselves right here on this earth. Many are seeking a home right here. But what does it mean to live as an alien and a stranger in the world? We want to unpack that just a little bit. What does it mean to live as an alien and stranger? Does it mean that we need to move to another country? Do we need to learn another language? Do we need to dress differently? Do we need to sell everything we have? No, not necessarily. It might include some of this, but it might not. So what does it mean to live as an alien and a stranger on this earth? I want to read a section uh, with the third-year students. We're reading through sections from early church history. And I want to read this paragraph from early church history. This is a letter from an unknown Christian that was uh, from an unknown Christian author. It was written around 150 A.D. So you're only talking about 50 to 100 years after the apostles lived. And he is wrestling with this very question that we're trying to answer. Listen to how he answers the question. He says, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind either in locality or in speech or in customs. For they dwell not somewhere in cities of their own, neither do they use some different language nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. That is, Christians are not different in that they live in a commune or they have their own language or they have their own customs. Nor again do they possess any invention discovered by any intelligence or study of ingenious men. We're not, we're not Christians because we have our own technology. Nor are they masters of any human dogma as some are. But while they dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians as the lot of each is cast and follow the native customs and dress and food and the other arrangements of life, like we live fairly ordinary lives on the earth that aren't too different from people all around us, Yet the constitution of their own citizenship which they set forth is marvelous. Their citizenship is a marvelous citizenship. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Yeah, they pay their taxes, but they also experience what it's like to be a stranger. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them. And every fatherland is foreign. You go to China, you're home. You come back to the U.S., you're in a foreign land. (laughs) This is what he's saying. Why? Because our citizenship is not of this world. They marry like all other men and they have children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They do not abort their children. That's what it's saying right there. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. Do you see what he's saying here? What is it that distinguishes Christians? It's the way they live. They abstain from fleshly lusts. It's not the way they dress. It's not the language they speak. But it's their, it's their conduct. They do not abort their children. They do not practice adultery. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. So how can we tease this out? Number one, what does it mean to live with an alien? We stop believing the lie that this world is all that there is. Everyone around you wants you to believe this is all that there is. Live for the here and now. But the Christian says, no, there's more. And we're not consumed by what consumes and drives everyone else. Number two, we cease living for the goal of building a secure environment for ourselves. We stop focusing on the permanence of life and instead we begin begin to dwell on the brevity of life. In the New Testament, life is just a little while. This 70, 80 years that God may give you on this earth is but a short little while. We see searching for significance outside of God and His purposes. We don't seek significance in family, in lands, in property, but we seek significance in doing the will of God. We're not duped by the glitter and glamour of this world's riches and pleasures. We can see past the veneer. We see see it for what it really is. 
We see it as a system. This world is a system engineered by Satan to turn people against God. And so we, we see past all of that. And finally, we cease living any way we please and we submit to God's laws as citizens of his kingdom. We don't just make up our own morality, but we submit to God and his his understanding of what is right and what is wrong. The fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the families of the earth still depends on his people living as aliens and strangers. You see, by refusing to live for this world, the church gives hope to this world. The very thing that sets us apart from this world, as strangers to this world, makes possible our mission to the world. If we live just like everyone else in this world, there would be nothing to attract them to Jesus Christ. But we're different. We live a different kind of life. And that draws people. Final point tonight is this. God's people are those who long for a better country, a heavenly home. We long for a better country. We're not interested in replacing replacing Eden on this earth. We're not interested in recreating a home without God. Rather, we're in search for the real thing. And we know that we won't find the real thing here on this earth. This is the testimony of those who live by faith. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed. What is the confession? They were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham could have gone back to Ur, but he didn't. Why did he not? They desired, but as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If you're seeking a heavenly city... God has prepared a place for you. That's a wonderful truth. God is not against cities, but He is against cities that promise men and women a sense of security, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose without Him and apart from Him. God's people understand that what makes Eden Eden is not the fruit trees, it's not the animals, it's not the meaningful tasks, but it's the reality that God is present. And that is why God's people long for a new heavens and a new earth. Because they long to live in the light of God's presence. And so, tonight, are we building ourselves a city on this earth? Or are we letting God build a city for us? That's a big question tonight, right? Are we trying to build a city here? Or are we letting God build us a city? Which way are we traveling tonight? Are we traveling east or are we traveling west? You know, which way are we going? Have you found a home in this world? And listen to this statement. Have you found a home in this world? If so, you will not find a home with God. That's the serious part of what we're talking about tonight. If you found a home in this world, you will not find a home with God. But here's the flip side to it. Have you found a home with God? Have you come home to God? Then you will not find a home in this world. You'll be an alien and a stranger to this world. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for opening our eyes to our being far from you and drawing us near, drawing us to yourself. And now, Lord, we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit, to live as we ought to live in this world, to truly live as aliens and strangers in this world. The people around us might see in us something attractive and might be drawn to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.